Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Fantastic to have you back. Simon Alicia here in beautiful Melbourne, Australia, joined this week by a special guest. Welcome, Kunal Anand. Uh, Kunal is CTO and co-founder at Previty. Hello, Kunal. Hi, Simon. How's it going? I'm here in uh, beautiful Los Angeles, probably not as beautiful as Melbourne, but uh, pretty nice over here. I think each city has its own unique charm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but... Uh, Australia is one of those places that's been on my list, and I know my wife and I have been planning to, to head out there sometime soon. So uh, Melbourne is certainly one of the, the next few places that we want to visit. Fantastic. Well, d- definitely worth the trip, that's for sure. So, um, so Kanal, tell us, what does Previty do? So my, my co-founder and I started Previty uh, almost four years ago, and the thesis behind Previty is to protect applications and data at runtime. Uh, which is fundamentally different from the way security or application security has been done today. Uh, For more than a decade now, as a security industry, we've been focused on applying security controls at the perimeter uh, or at the endpoint, and specifically using controls like web application firewalls or endpoint technologies uh, to specifically look at malware or rogue process execution. But as we've all noticed in the last five years, and especially with acceleration and transformations like things like the cloud, a lot of people are now moving kind of away from thinking about the network and thinking about endpoints and thinking more specifically about applications. And so my co-founder and I saw this this sort of tsunami coming and building up, and we were thinking really about uh, security in general and and put our our heads together and realized that the future is going to be really around application security. And I think we, we're really seeing that as a true thing. So specifically, what we, what we do at Previty is we create uh, technology that lives inside uh, our customers' application runtime. So that could include the, the JVM or the CLR. And what we try to do is protect uh, our, those applications from attacks like cross-site scripting, SQL injection, cross-site request forgery. Uh, for those that are technically inclined, they're probably familiar with taxonomies like the OWASP Top 10. And that's a kind of a class of attack that we can monitor or uh, protect against. That's great. And I really like that idea of, of getting closer to the application, really contextualizing security, as well as the far more, if I can use the phrase, real time. It's an overused phrase, but something that, that focuses more on just, you know, barriers to entry and a few layers, but rather something that's far more active and adaptive. It really changes the landscape. But um, but obviously, you know, this, this doesn't come without challenges architecturally. You you were born in the cloud. You, you started off uh, in AWS. Tell us a little bit about you know, how you do what you do and some of the challenges you face with things like scale and performance and, and all those good things that make great ideas a lot harder than they sounded the first time. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to, to sort of unpack and share our journey. So when we started the company, uh, our, we, had, we had kind of our pick of, of the litter in terms of what sort of cloud providers we wanted to use. And we came up through an accelerator and uh, the accelerator uh, worked with a bunch of providers, including AWS. And uh, you guys at AWS were very kind enough to, to give us access to, uh, to various credits. And that bootstrapped our development. And what we ended up doing was building up our entire architecture from the very beginning on top of AWS. Uh, and being four years ago, we were looking across different technologies that could allow us to take advantage of ephemeral computing uh, and specifically when it comes to AWS, the one thing that we love with AWS is that uh, the sort of ephemerality and the idea of being able to spin up instances ad hoc to try and handle things like scale. 
And so we investigated a bunch of different languages and we settled on the Go programming language. And it's crazy to, to look back on it and say four years ago, uh, we decided to bank uh, the company on the Go programming language. And we did. And at that time, Go was, I won't say nascent, but it was certainly... It was, it was a gutsy a, a call. Smart. It was a gutsy call at that stage, that's for sure. And and the the call was made for a couple of reasons. One, I love that Go has... Uh, some interesting concurrency paradigms with respect to Go routines and channels, uh, rather than the traditional way of thinking about uh, multi-process programming like threads and threading and, and sort of process management. And then the second is, and I know this is going to sound strange, is its handling and treatment of Unicode. Uh, being <laughs> being in security, <laughs> Unicode is a very important thing, and you'll be surprised how many languages uh, get that wrong. And so those are the two primary considerations, and we picked Go. And so from a really high level, uh, what we ended up doing was going all in on AWS. And so we picked uh, the services that we needed. Obviously, EC2, uh, we used ELBs from the very beginning. We used uh, RDS and MySQL. And as a startup, I can't tell you how many times, and even to this day, uh, we're so happy that we went with that model, uh, primarily because we don't need to have the resources like a data operations management team to manage databases or to repair indexes. Uh, working at large organizations before, like BBC Worldwide or MySpace before that, I can't tell you how many times we found ourselves in situations where someone in the middle of the night had to wake up and repair an index, or someone had to uh, do a data migration or uh, spin up databases for scaling. We've never had to do that. And we've been in business for four years. And uh, over the four years, we've processed uh, billions and billions of event payloads and significant event payloads, as I mentioned, uh, whether it's cross-site scripting or, or SQLi, and AWS has never really let us down. I will say, though, that it's it was really interesting in the early days uh, when we decided to embrace sort of the cloud, uh, thinking about how we were going to go multi-AZ and then figuring out how we were going to go multi-region. That was one mm -hmm. of the biggest challenges that we had, and we, we solved that in our very first year of being at the company. So we ended up writing, uh, we call it internally, smart cash. And smart cash was um, a multi-region caching solution that we came up with uh, to, to make sure that as people were hitting us, uh, we were storing you know, things like tokens, we were storing uh, information that we needed to reuse across multiple regions, and at the same time using it as a way to queue analytics uh, and time series analytics. And we then relied on SQS underneath that abstraction uh, to manage all of that for us across the regions. And so we ended up building a lot of really cool cool pipelines on top of the primitives. And I'll call things like EC2, uh, S3, SQS primitives. And I, I can't tell you how, how awesome our journey has been. But uh, over over the years, we've consumed more and more of AWS's services. And uh, whether it's DynamoDB for key value storage, uh, Aurora, we use Aurora. We've been an early user of Aurora. We're fascinated by it. And we think that the direction that, that AWS is taking with respect to now with Lambda and the idea of overall computing, uh, I think is fascinating to us and something that we're going to be exploring more and more over the coming years. For sure. And there's a, there's a lot I want to go into with you on, on that. It's, it's interesting you raise the point about multi-region and multi-AZ. I mean, obviously, everyone should be deploying multi-AZ. And depending on your workload, multi-region is also something to do. But you're absolutely right that using something to decouple those regions to make sure they do operate independently from a logical perspective within your application is so important. And, and SQS is one of those great services 
that lets you do that. And what we're seeing, particularly as you have more and more regions, and we just opened a region in Canada, just opened a region in London, um, so they're, they're, they're coming thick and fast as you were, um, the ability to, to replicate and deploy your system in multiple regions and bring it closer to your end users as well as decouple um, some of those domains where, where necessary is, is very nice. It's, you know, it's interesting having talked about your journey as a startup. I mean, you think about what it would have taken to build your business 10 years ago versus today. You know, people, people often say there's no better time to have a startup, but from a technic- technology perspective and a cost perspective, it's pretty compelling. I mean, you just yeah. you couldn't do it you know, beforehand and suddenly you can. Yeah, significant advantages starting today. And even if we were to start today, uh, we would have so many interesting technologies to play with. I don't even know if we were to start today if we would have traditional EC2 instances. Mm-hmm. I think we we would we would investigate more thoroughly uh, the serverless uh, approach. And I know there are a bunch of frameworks that have been popping up. I know we ourselves are experimenting with our own framework uh, mm-hmm. for the serverless model, and not because it's an NIH approach. It's simply because we've got some specific needs regarding how we collect information and and how we process that information. So today, uh, when we deploy our customers, our customers can. Uh, just take a plugin and that will do all the security work. But at some point, they may want that information, those analytics going back to some dashboard that they can visualize or visualize that information in a dashboard. But that information needs to cycle through or go through some plumbing, if you if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've been highly leveraging AWS for over the last few years. So the workload today is, let's say, it's something from the application pings uh, AWS that's we, we use DynamoDB uh, for our key value store, as I mentioned, but to get to something like DynamoDB where it's aggregated and compacted there, it goes through uh, Route 53 for DNS. So we're all in on, on Route 53. We love DNS as a software service, by the way. There's nothing <laughs> nothing nicer than being able to programmatically change and, and do things via DNS, where sometimes when we want to experiment with code or we want to experiment with uh, with various features, uh, we will spin up specific DNS entries when we will throw experiments up there, and it's ephemeral for us, right? Because we can we can script it, we can we can put an API uh, together on our end as a service or as an experiment, set it up, and then route particular traffic there. Or when we do deployments, we can fail over. But today, the beacon data and the intelligence uh, goes up through a load balancer, hits EC2, and a couple of things could happen. It could hit a queue. Uh, it could go through DynamoDB. It may hit another EC2 instance. And eventually, we've got compaction services, time series compaction services that will then push that data, whether it's to MySQL or into DynamoDB. And as we're looking at the next few years, we're thinking about how we can reduce the number of EC2 instances that we have and focus more on reactive computing or event-driven computing. Mm-hmm. And that's a paradigm that I've been fascinated by. So I, I, got, I, I really cut my teeth on distributed systems way back in the day at NASA. So I joined the company or the organization, if you want to call it that when they were starting to investigate distributed systems. And at the time, a lot of the systems that they had were built in legacy technologies like COBOL or Fortran or uh, <laughs> or even more modern technologies like Perl. And they were gluing a lot of these systems together. So very primitive distributed systems. But everything was all constructed around uh, basically having to tell another system to go do something. So a COBOL system would have to tell something to a Fortran system. And it wasn't reactive. And when I think about the future of computing, and I think about where we are today, and where I think we're going, and I certainly I think AWS is pushing this forward is around reactive computing. The idea of uh, event driven computing is fascinating, because if nothing is going on, 
there shouldn't really be any I.O. But if, uh, let's say, an event comes into the system, you may want to then cascade or trigger across the incredible machine, which could mean uh, signals and processing going across multiple stages and, and multiple layers. And I'm fascinated by that. And I think uh, as we kind of go down that line, it'll be interesting to see what further abstractions we end up taking and how the, the very nature of our applications change. Because today, when we think about applications, like we, we're thinking about applications like millions of lines of code, or I won't say millions, but maybe the legacy apps where I've seen those before at NASA. But today, we're thinking about apps that are maybe in the thousands of lines of code. But in the future, especially with something like Lambda, what is an app, right? What is the concept of an app? And does that significantly change? Because at Lam- with something like Lambda, you get to focus on basically constructing these individual processes that are back maybe instead of thousands of lines of code, so maybe dozens or maybe even a hundred lines of code that are daisy chained together to complete the overall system and the overall task. So it's fascinating. I, I think it's I think it's spot on. It, it is really interesting because there's like less less coding work to be done and and more value that you get very very quickly. So so when we we look at event driven processing, I mean, you, firstly you get a much better customer experience, a much better user experience because things are happening as they need it in the way they need it. And I'm also really in, intrigued and and really enjoying this evolution into sort of event driven processing, etc. Because it gives you the option to both do as much work as you need to when you need to do it. Do it very, very quickly. The other element is optimizing cost around that. So if you're only paying for those events when they take place, suddenly you've got a highly efficient processing model just from a pure cost perspective. But what we can build is far more sophisticated. I mean, I, I sat down a little while ago and did some stuff with, with Kinesis streams and analytics, et cetera. And there was, uh, to your point, there was so little coding that had to be done. You know, I was writing a few queries and hooking some things together and a bit of Lambda. And suddenly you're sort of done end to end. And then when you add things like, uh, you know, Athena for serverless um, analytics on S3 data, I mean, suddenly you've really changed the landscape of what you can do in terms of what data you can get access to and then feed into that event stream um, very, very effectively. It it changes the customer experience and changes what you can build significantly. You're spot on. And I'll I'll add two points uh, to that. One is around security. And then the second is about uh, sort of the next generation. But regarding security... If our applications are changing and going to, as you just described, uh, almost like small building blocks that you're that you get to build and and or maybe pull from somewhere else and connect together, that changes security overall. Because today, again, we're focused on doing vulnerability analysis. We're trying to secure these these large applications. However, if you've got these building blocks that that have security built in them, or the platform itself is secure, there's some safety mechanisms in place. Uh, that are some guarantees or contracts between those services, I think we're going to see that be a real positive thing for security overall. And I know there are going to be some security beards out there that that are going to go out there and say, no, no, it's actually going to be more complex because there's multiple services in place. However, you could argue that uh, even though the number of services go up, uh, the lines of code and the effective lines of code go down. And if you build on top of a consistent platform and the platform has security controls in there, it's actually a net win uh, overall. Uh, the second thing that I'll bring up is I had the, the honor and sort of the privilege last week of uh, getting to meet one of my heroes, uh, the, the inventor of the C programming language. And we, uh, Brian Kernigan, and we, um, of course, he, he signed my, my book, the, the C programming language. <laughs> but, <laughs> We've all got that book. <laughs> we all do. Uh, but I asked him a question about the future of computing and what he thinks, um, specifically around distributed systems and distributed computing in general. And I was fascinated to hear his take in terms of 
uh, how collectively as, as an industry, we need to get better at educating the next generation around distributed systems, not just building an application, but thinking through and architecting how these components, how these systems are going to talk together. Uh, when he created C, not, there was nothing better right at the time. And now we've got languages like C and other abstractions, whether it's Go, Python, Node, Rust, it doesn't matter. Uh, we've got the abstractions today. Now it's more about architecting these services and making these building blocks work together. How do you build uh, the next or sort of educate the next generation and build programs for the next generation for them to come up uh, having the exposure and having the knowledge or the, the sort of critical reasoning skills to think about how you go from architecting an overall platform and with these building blocks. That I think is going to be one of the next big challenges, uh, whether, whether you want to think of it as computer science or computer engineering, I think that's something that we're going to have to do better at going forward. Absolutely. I mean, there's such a big mental model change or mind shift change that has to take place in the way you tackle problems. Um, you're right. We need we need to do a better job of teaching that to to both existing developers and and the next generation as well. It's just uh, it's a it's, it's a different way of looking at things, and a, and and I would argue a better way of looking at things. But like with all things, they evolve, and we need to evolve our thinking too. It's an it's actually an opportunity for AWS, right? And and specifically because AWS is constructing a lot of these primitives, and they are now building the abstractions on top of those primitives. Who knows? Maybe maybe two, three years from now, there will be more abstractions on top of something like Lambda. I mean, I think it's early days still. Uh, and we're mm. just starting to understand the idea of event-driven computing. And going forward, it would be interesting to see uh, what it would take to bring the next generation up to speed. So the idea of uh, educational programs being spawned from uh, from companies like AWS, uh, sort of focusing in whether it's at particular universities or designing courses or even opening up various components uh, for students to come in and try or, or play with, I think could be a really interesting thing for the overall industry. For sure. It's a, look, it's a, an exciting time for the industry and uh, it's uh, going to be fascinating to see what happens, that's for sure. Hey, uh, Kunal, where can people find Previty? So you can find Previty uh, on the web, so HTTPS. <laughs> colon slash slash previty.com that's a p-r-e-v-o-t-y.com uh you can find us on twitter at previty uh i think we're on a couple of the other social uh sites maybe even instagram too at this point which is which is interesting uh but uh, <laughs> but we're we're certainly around uh, like i said we've been around for uh for four years uh we've been working with uh, some pretty large customers in the, the retail finance uh space uh it's uh, it's fascinating to us to be uh, to be focusing on security in this day and age and we're looking forward to continuing to build our platform and expand our platform and thankful to be on something like AWS right now and as i mentioned before we're really interesting we're really interested in seeing uh, what's going to happen with the future of computing and we want to make sure we don't miss it and with uh, with all the effort that AWS is putting in we want to make sure that we stay on top of it and we continue to invest our resources on top of those new innovations so we ourselves can be uh, creating better products for our customers and being more cost efficient about what we do. So thank you again. Hey, sounds like a good plan. Kunal, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Simon, appreciate you having me. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. And as ever, we do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com. Uh, do tell others that it exists and there's lots and lots of back episodes to listen to as well. And of course, until next time, keep on building. <laughs>